Orangewood had a blessed weekend. Uh, many of you participated in our Grace and Marriage Conference where we had Darlene and Scotty Smith come and open up their lives in the gospel to us. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Smith, for, for doing that. Let me tell you, uh, today we have a, a real blessing uh, to hear a man of God open up God's word, Scotty Smith. And let me give you a little bit of background about him. He may not look like it, but he's kind of like a rock star in the PCA. I mean, really, I mean, he really is. I mean, Scotty's reputation always was like huge. And as a, a young youth pastor, I went to a, a, a conference, a youth pastor's convention with Katie in Nashville. And I couldn't wait to go to Nashville because right outside of Nashville, a little place called Franklin was a church that Scotty started called uh, Christ Community Church. Now, this church was like the home for rock stars. Well, maybe contemporary Christian music rock stars. All the people you know, the big names, Stephen Curtis, Chapman, Amy Grant, they all went to his church. And we all were jealous. You know, he had this church that kept growing. And, it, you know, he had multiple services right there in Franklin. And so when I went to the convention not to hear Scotty, I said, i got to go over to Franklin. we got to hear Scotty. This, this guy's good. So I went, and I was so excited. Katie and I went to worship there. And we walked into this kind of dumpy 70s stuck sanctuary. I I can't remember the the color of the pews, but they were not really. They were orange, yeah. See, I'm colorblind. I thought they were were ugly. I'm just telling you. They they weren't good. And they they kind of were locked in a time warp. So you look and think, man, this place is kind of dumpy. And and then here comes Scott. I'm excited. You know, I'm like, "This this is a rock star PCA pastor. And he comes out, and he's like lost in the 60s. You know, he's, he's got Birkenstocks on, and he, he's kind of a little, I was like, really? All right, all right, but it's going to be really good. It's going to be really good. And he starts his sermon off this way. He, he walks out to the congregation. He kind of walked off. He says, hey, what books have you all read lately? I'm like, he's talking to his congregation. He's not even preaching, you know. I could show up and say, what books have you read lately? Let me tell you that. But within a few minutes, he pointed us to Jesus. And within a few minutes, the grace of God seen in the face of Christ came alive. And my heart started singing. And I realized it's not Scotty. It was Jesus in Scotty. So God has used this man uh, through his brokenness to tell an amazing story, to point others to it. He's associated some with rock stars, but I still consider him a rock star. You want to know why? Because he knows he's a sinner. And he's in love with a man named Jesus, and he's given us gifts to hear from him. So come, Scotty. It's great to have you in Darlene. Blessings, brother. I would um, definitely say the, the last sentence Jeff offered, if, if that represents a rock star, a, a man that knows he's a broken sinner needing grace, then absolutely I am a rock star. So uh, the other stuff I'm not too sure about. I do still wear Birkenstocks, but I have toes in these. You'll notice little, it's just kind of South Florida Birkenstock. Close the toes a little bit, but anyway. You comfortable? You all right? Good? All right. What we want to do this morning is very, very simple. Uh, yet again, we want to see how the Bible reveals our God to be so much more generous, loving, and, uh, and joy-producing in our hearts than we can imagine. 
Uh, we're going to be walking through a portion of Scripture. In fact, uh, if you, if, I think it may be in your outline or it will be on the screen or if you have some kind of electronic device or a Bible, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And let me tell you what we're going to get after today. You'll, you'll notice that the title of this reflection is Holy Discontent and Gospel Renewal. Holy Discontent and Gospel Renewal. And basically the premise of this entire reflection today is going to be captured in one sentence that I'll give you now. You had a long weekend. You're going to work hard to concentrate. You've got enough brain space and alertness to remember one sentence. Here's the one sentence I would want you to take hold of and take out of this room today. So we'll see it in this text. We should see it in every text. There's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. There's nothing more than the gospel of God's grace. There's just more of it. And that's really where this theme of holy discontent and gospel renewal comes in. You see, God is committed not just to comfort us, but to disrupt us, to stir up within us a hunger and the thirst for the things that alone deeply satisfy Even before we read Paul's words, a lot of us that would think about the Apostle Paul's life would say that's a a great picture of who we know Paul to be. Here's a man by his own testimony that was rescued out of dead, heartless religion, a Pharisee of Pharisees, a man that, that tried to do the rules all of his life, that literally tried to please God with every part of his being. But he had a collision one day in life on the road to, uh, to Damascus. You remember that Paul's story goes something like this. He was wanting to drag off women and children and families who had become followers of Jesus. He really wanted to persecute this new movement about Jesus. And God sovereignly from heaven put Paul in a very... Uh, dependent posture. He was blind for a few days. But then as Paul tells his own story, it's like, you know, the scales were ripped not off simply my physical oracles, but the eyes of my heart. And I saw that the one I was persecuting loved me more than anyone else. And the rest of his story, as you read it unfolding through his letters in the book of Acts, you find a man getting freer and freer and freer. A man who at the end of his life, his design was to finally make it to Spain so he could go to some place that no one had gone yet to talk about the love of God in Jesus. Paul's life was disrupted on the front end, but it stayed disrupted because there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. Now, we want to read this scripture now to kind of see how that same heart and Paul's life and story began to spill over everywhere he went. Uh, Again, the churches in Ephesus, a part of Asia Minor, uh, Paul lived there. He loved these people. He saw the gospel take root, but we're going to find him saying, there's so much more, you guys. And don't be surprised when we forget When we forget the gospel, in fact, Martin Luther would say, the great German reformer, we need to hear this gospel every day because we forget it every day. In fact, Luther went on to say to those under his care, uh, young men studying for ministry, he said, here's what I want you to know the ministry is all about. Beating the gospel into the heads of God's people. Doesn't sound very delicate, does it? 
But you see, what Luther understood was this. Luther, like Paul, lived so much of a religious life apart from grace. And finally, it collapsed. It imploded. And he came alive to the only love that is enough. The only love that will never let us go. It's true for Luther. It was certainly true for Paul. Let's see what he wants for men and women just like you and me. As we read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Again, under the theme of holy discontent and gospel renewal, getting stirred up for more. Verse 15. For this reason, Paul writes, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Let's even stop there for a moment. Consider what's going on here. Paul's congratulating this community of men and women. He's saying, here's what I am really excited about. You have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's evidenced by the way you love all the saints, not just your little gospel posse, but all kinds of people, just people from different parts of the culture, the least and the lost, people from different backgrounds. I'm thankful that I see that you have a real faith in Jesus Evidenced by your love for all the saints. And that's precisely why I'm praying for you. Now, please make the connection. Paul's saying that is so what you're to be about. Go deeper with that. Go deeper with that. I've heard about your faith. I've seen it. Glad to hear the good rumors that are coming where I am. Go deeper. Verse 17, this is why he says, that's why I... Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe." That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything in the church. For, in, for which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, let's pray once again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, glorious triune God, thank you that you are so immeasurably much better, so much more wondrously loving, so much more life-giving than we ever hoped or imagined. Thank you that the one that knows the worst about us, loves us more than any other. And thank you for a steady stream of transformed lives and churches throughout history that give evidence that there really isn't anything more than the gospel of your grace. There's only more of it. Would you make that real in our hearts today? Lord, a lot of us are here today out of a very lousy, hard season of life. And some of us literally don't even want to be here. Others of us, Lord, have been alive to the love of God in Jesus before, but we 
Lord, we have leaked grace. We have allowed the busyness, the drivenness, the brokenness of our own stories and those around us to wrist from us the joy of this salvation. Lord, others of us still are locked into some wrong thinking about God and who Jesus is. Still more of us, Lord, have yet really to believe that not just as a part of a big family, but individually we are known, pursued, and loved by you. Would you come today in your power? Thank you for what you did this weekend. Thank you for the gift Darlene and I have known to be with so many remarkable people this weekend who like us are thirsty for more grace, who need more freedom, who need to come alive even more to the good gift of holy discontent that we might be renewed in and by and for this gospel, praying together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me give you one more little image, really a story from Darlene in my life that will help you understand Uh, this theme of discontent and why it's a good thing for God to stir you up. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said, after he came to faith in Jesus, he said, I've come to realize that we are too easily satisfied as human beings because God has made us for a vacation at the sea, but we're content to make our own little mud pies because we really don't think it's true. But when C.S. Lewis came to faith and came to a living faith in the living Jesus, he developed the theme of of, of holy discontent or longing. And, And he said a lot of things like this. And you see it through the Chronicles of Narnia. You see it in his lectures, etc. C.S. Lewis basically said, here's the Christian life. God has set us free in his love through the work of his son and has started within us a powerful longing for the future, for the fullness of what he will give us progressively and then finally when King Jesus comes back. And therefore, longings are not meant to discourage us, but to say, as C.S. Lewis would say, no sunset, no kiss, no amount of money, no second, third, or 17th home, no different spouse, nothing can possibly satisfy the longing in our heart the way that Jesus does. Now, again, the illustration for Darlene and I talk about holy discontent. Our first time in Switzerland. I always wanted to go to Switzerland, always. I'm not sure why. Uh, It has always been a part of me that would say, if I can make it to Switzerland, I'll have a sense of what the new heaven and new earth are gonna look like. Maybe because I've always loved mountains. Grew up in North Carolina, loved the Blue Ridge Mountains, loved the Banner Elk Boone area. Then I discovered fly fishing. First time I ever fly fished was in, in Estes Park, Colorado. Discovered the, 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 the Rockies and, and higher elevation and fishing for these majestic little greenback cutthroats, these hand-painted brookies that, that just, you know, all of a sudden I realized, Lord, there's beauty is everywhere if I will see it. But there was a part of me that said, I've still got to make it to Switzerland. So I looked at a few old Heidi movies, ate a couple of Hershey bars to prepare myself. Just kidding. But we were invited uh, for the first time in 1985 uh, to go with a group of friends from Nashville to a place, a little fishing village called Iselvalt on the Lake of Brienz right outside of Interlaken. And uh, when Darlene and I got uh, off the airplane in Zurich and trained down into Interlocking and, and, and got off, literally got off that train in that beautiful village of Interlocking, 
I never felt so alive. Just, I wanted to dance, I wanted to scream. It was a, a day that the Germans call a fern, which means the air was so clear you could hear sound for 10 miles. It was just gorgeous. I love the fall colors of Western North Carolina. This was like that on steroids. But, but here's where I'm going with that story. So we settled into the village. We started two-week, um, I started two-week teaching, teaching of Scripture, going through the book of Galatians with some friends. But our host, a native Swiss, his name was Heine Germanidi. And, and Heine said, well, we're going to study the Bible, but we also have got some special stuff planned. In fact, next Tuesday, we're going to the Kaye Chocolate Factory. All right, so the oldest chocolate factory in Switzerland is Collier, C-A-L-L-I-E-R. Now, I am all about dark chocolate. In fact, I believe if you go to heaven, the food you eat forever is dark chocolate. If you go to hell, it's canned asparagus. So uh, now, if you like canned asparagus, just get a different illustration, okay? Find out something that's repugnant. But the point is this. Uh, chocolate factory sounded good. So we got all of our friends on their bus, and we went to this chocolate factory, and um, so here's the way they worked it out. They didn't really tell you what was going to be at the end of the tour, but you go in and you're surrounded with aroma of chocolate. And you've got about a 30 or 40-minute tour. You go through the whole factory. There's milk chocolate. There's dark chocolate. There's nuts. There's non-nuts. There's, you know, everything. It was Willy Wonka on steroids. But at the end of the tour, they said, all right, you've got five additional minutes. So they opened up the doors to a room where there were these long tables covered with everything they make in the factory. They said, you've got five minutes to eat all the chocolate you can eat in five minutes. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. Talk about stirring up longings, stirring up longings for something good. But here was the deal. They said, you cannot take one piece of chocolate out of the room. You can't put anything in your pockets. You can simply enjoy, and, and you and I know if you like chocolate, it's not a, something you just throw down like popcorn. You savor it. But, but here is the net effect of that. You go in there, longings are stirred up, the oohs, the ahs, the closing of the eyes for chocolate lovers, that is. But then as soon as you go out, they have all the chocolate you can buy. <laughs> so they're stirring up longings for a lot more of what you've got to have now that you've had a feast. Well, here's the difference. Here's the connection and the difference between that and what we're looking at today. The Lord is committed to stir up within us a hunger and a thirst with an aroma of grace that says there's so much more. But here's the best news. It's free. You don't go outside the room and find, oh my gosh, I've got to pay with a lot of my good works. I've got to promise never to make a mistake again. I've got to, got to clean up my act from the... No, 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 no. Here's the point. It's an amazing ongoing banquet that points toward the ultimate banquet of the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is what was in Paul's heart. This is what changed his life and why he said, I want to live the rest of my life with the gifts God's given me, living in this story. I don't want to see other men and women and children liberated to know this is our Father's world. He did hand paint those trouts. He thought of the aroma of chocolate. He has created every single nerve ending in our body and he loves us and he has a future for us. It's magnificent. Let's live before him. What does it look like? Four things Paul prays for in this scripture that we want to briefly consider. I want to consider four things that Paul would say, as I think of you men and women in Ephesus and every generation of Christians, here's what I want you to come even more alive to. Because of faith in Christ 
and the love that's being stirred up within your hearts for him and for one another. Four things go deeper and deeper and deeper in. Here's the feast. Here's the banquet. Here's what you will never exhaust. Where does he start? Look at verse 17. Verse the four things Paul wants for us. Paul says, I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Boom, punchline. What, what, what does Paul want? In fact, what's the, what's the biggest thing he could pray for his own heart, but for every generation of Christians? That we might know God, the glorious Father, better and better and better. Now, I came from a background, mentioned already in North Carolina, where the church I went to was neither liberal or conservative. It was just Southern, which meant we went there because it's just what you as a Southern person do. We didn't fight fundies or liberals. We simply did what you do on Sunday. But, but I had no clue about what the real truth was. My church family was not one that talked about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was just basically we do this. We want to be good people. But I did not realize that, that Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God. Some of you may know the scripture I'm referring to. John 17, 3 in the high priestly prayer, a prayer that Jesus prays for his own disciples who he knows are about to betray him. Oh, Father, this is eternal life that they may know you and your son whom you have sent. The Hebrew and the Greek words used in the Bible for knowing God, uh, they certainly include learning things about God, but primarily it's the image of knowing intimately. And you see, that's what anybody and everybody in this room needs more than anything else. To come alive to God's self-revelation rescuing you and me from the wrong ways we think about God, from the insufficient ways we think about God. A.W. Tozier, who was a great Christian leader uh, and and lived in Chicago in in the late 50s, he wrote a lot of great books, early 50s, late 50s. But one of my favorite quotes from Tozier, Tozier said, the essence of idolatry is to think about God in your heart in ways that really contradict who he is. What a profound way of thinking about idolatry. What's idolatry? Oh, it's for sure giving ourselves to stuff that's not God, but really it's to think wrong about God. And some of you, like me, who were raised in the church, still think wrongly, insufficiently, incompletely about God. How How does Paul want us through Scripture to think about God? As sovereign Abba. Let me just unpack these two words for you. You see, to know God intimately, the way we can only know him through the gospel of his grace, connects us with two grand realities of who God is. He is sovereign, which means that he is in control of all things. This past year, maybe it was true in in South Florida as it was up in Middle Tennessee, we got all worked up over another election. And as responsible citizens, we should absolutely invest ourselves in the political process. But some of us were absolutely certain that if we got the right person in the White House, all would be right. And if the person I voted for did not sit there, woe is me. As opposed to understanding, there's an occupied throne in heaven. To know by grace 
that the God that made you has adopted you to be his, his own and to know that he is sovereign. The freedom with that. I mean, God tells us himself in his word. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to understand until heaven. God doesn't lie. God is a lot more honest about the reality of the Christian life than we are. This is not something easy to figure out. Through the course of the weekend, Darlene and I shared a lot of the stories in our lives that are absolutely hard. Before we got married, after we got married. And if we didn't believe that God truly is a sovereign redeemer, we would despair. Again, what does Paul say? Oh, men and women of Ephesus, you, you, you've got faith in Jesus. Hallelujah. You're loving each other. But here's what I want. Keep on, keep on, keep on surrendering to the process of knowing that God really is your father. You're not orphans. You're not waifs. God doesn't have a doghouse to put you into. Did any of y'all grow up? See, this dates me, all right? You know, not only my footwear, but we grew up in a culture where a lot of homes in the South had a little dachshund doggy right outside the back door. It's called the doghouse. Now, again, I'll, I'll show hands in a minute, but here's what it looked like. There's a, so if you had five children in your family, there's a mom and pop and five little doggies on hooks. And then there was a doghouse. If you started misbehaving, your mother might take your little doggy person off the hook, put you in the doghouse until you earn your way out of the doghouse. Any, any of you know what I'm talking about at all? Or is it you're just shaking your head? I know we've got to come up with some new stuff. All right. At least you can agree with me. You know what it means to live under the guilt and the shame and the pressure of not being enough. Didn't take a doghouse, but really wondering, where do I stand? I'm not enough. I haven't done enough. See, to know this God through the work of Jesus is to understand there is no doghouse. Sovereign Abba, Father, because of what Jesus has done for you, constantly delights in you, rejoices over you with singing. He's not ignorant of or amnesia towards the way you and I fall short of his glory. But he's done everything to secure us in his love and to change us. This is what Paul wants believers in Ephesus to understand, that you might know the one you know. Now he tells us three more things in this text that help us understand what that means. And we're going to briefly consider these before we sing a couple of songs and go forward in this glorious afternoon and, 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 and have lunch and have a nap or whatever else is on the agenda. But consider before we do that, these three other wonderful things Paul's praying we might know more of. I'll mention them and then we'll unpack each of them. In the remaining of our text, Paul prays along with a growing intimacy with God as sovereign Abba Father. He wants us to know the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the power of God's spirit. Let me say those again, then we'll talk about them. Paul's praying that Christians might know more of the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the power of God's spirit. And to connect you with those three categories, let me give you the formula if you ever want to move to Nashville to become a great songwriter. And, and there's a connection here, okay? Now, don't come up to me with a cassette after the or a CD after the morning service and say, Can, you know, take this to Nashville for me, I'm coming. No. Here's what a songwriter does, however. 
a great song that will get accepted, recorded, and possibly on the charts has three things that a songwriter goes after. Lyric, music, and dance. Lyric would be what? Of course, what the song actually says. A bad, corny lyric is not going to get recorded. Likewise, a songwriter is looking for the music to go with the lyric. You, you want a melody, you want a chorus that really just has a connection, has an emotional connection. Something takes place. You hear these words sung in that way, and, and you, know, you know, there's just that sense of experience in your heart. But then thirdly, a songwriter really wants to see the effect of dance. It does not mean that every song puts you on the dance floor, but, but movement, especially movement towards your iTunes account to buy that puppy. But, but dance is engagement. And it changes the way you maybe spend that day. That, that song said something, it penetrated your heart and it redirected what you did on that date with that woman in that moment through that season. So that's exactly what Paul does here. When he talks about the hope of our calling, the riches of God's inheritance, and the power of God's spirit, it looks like this. Paul's saying, I want you to come alive to the lyric of the gospel. I want you to understand the hope of our calling. I want you to understand the lyric. The gospel has a lyric. Now, what does he mean by that? He means to you and to me that, that really there, there's some important stuff to learn that when you begin to see it as truth, you begin to see other stuff as non-truth. I'll give you an example. I became a Christian in 1968 sitting in a theater in downtown Burlington, North Carolina, the State Theater. I was a senior in high school. That dates me. You do the math. I'd been playing uh, keyboards in a rhythm and blues band, mostly playing Atlantic Coast Conference fraternity parties from Washington, D.C. down to Atlanta. In fact, the very last job I played was for the entire graduating senior class of the University of Virginia. Now, that's not to impress you, and I really am not a rock star. I'm a wannabe musician. But... Um, but when I became a Christian in 68, let me tell you what the lyric of my gospel was. This is all I understood here because I didn't know any better. I was just misinformed. I thought the Christian life was this. When you become a Christian, you feel real bad about you. You ask Jesus into your heart. He wipes away all of the sins you've committed up to that point, And then you move forward in life, trusting him and doing the best you can with the hope that one day you go to heaven when you die. Now, at the time, it sounded pretty good. Okay, you mean, okay, I get a second chance? All my stuff is washed away, and I can really be sincere and work hard and kind of shape up? You know what church history calls that, or even the Bible calls that? Heresy. That is not what it means to be a Christian. That is not good news at all. That's pragmatism. That's moralism. It's legalism. Because, see, the lyric of the gospel, in fact, this is where Paul went with that very image. He's praying that we would know the hope of our calling, which means the content. Why, why would we be a people of hope? Well, preceding this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul unpacks a lot of great statements about what it really means to know Jesus. He talks about being loved before the world began. He talks about redemption. He talks about being sealed by the Spirit. He's just putting a lot of stuff out there that, that maybe to you and me seems real heady, but it's not. It's not at all. In fact, you see, everybody in this room will be passionate to learn something 
that means a lot to you. I mentioned fly fishing early. Some of you, the, that would be such a snoozer to think you would ever want to spend time in a cold stream having line fall on your head while you're trying to catch a loose fish. But you know what? There's something you're excited about that you willingly study and learn. Now, the point would be this. Paul's saying the core reality is God's grace for you. We want to learn what that means. And so really, when Paul was writing Ephesians, he started talking about this lyric of the gospel in verse 3. And in the Greek, there's not a single comma or semicolon or colon or period. It's one big sentence in the Greek because it's like Paul starts writing about the truth of what Jesus has done, who he is and who we are in him. And he cannot stop. He cannot take his breath. One long sentence. An English teacher's nightmare to try to digest. Even worse, our nightmare to try to structure. But you see, there's the good news. It's so overwhelming. So as we grow as Christians, a part of that's going to involve learning truth. What, what does the Bible say about grace? What is, do you, is, can it really be true? And here's an affirmation. See, part of the gospel would be this. No, it's not. The Christian life is not a second chance to do better with your life. It's the second Adam, Jesus, who lived in your life, a life of perfect obedience, obeying God's law for you perfectly, and then climbed upon the tree of Calvary and died upon the cross, exhausting God's judgment against your sins so that God cannot love you more than he does today and will never love you less. Do you know what would happen if you believe that and I believe that? We'd be absolutely changed, set free. That's why we go to the second of our three last affirmations. Paul says, I want you to know the hope of our calling. Study what the Bible says about Jesus. This is a church that forever has existed to declare those things. But let's keep studying. Let's keep learning. But the second thing he prays for is that we might know the riches of God's inheritance. And that's where stuff kind of moves from your head to your heart. The hope is the content of what we believe. It's our theology. The music of the gospel is our doxology. When you really begin to say, oh my goodness, this changes everything. And you really can see this as Paul unpacks the language of inheritance. Paul prays, you can see this in most English translations, Paul prays that we might know the riches of God's inheritance. Though that can mean two things, the Greek would seem to suggest one thing in particular. It can certainly mean the inheritance we get from knowing God, but more precisely in the Bible, it means that we are God's inheritance. Now think about this for a moment in terms of the realm of inheritance. Some of you have lived through horrible family stories of inheritance because it created fighting. Others of you have had healthier ones. But you get the general theme of an inheritance. You hear a trust fund has been set up or, or you know, your mom, your dad worked hard. And, and you know, when you reach an age or when, when they die, whatever else. So we know inheritance means something's coming to me that didn't cost me anything. But you see, think about this. In the gospel, God says, I am thrilled that you are my inheritance. This is how much you mean to me. And as you and I sit here, we believe that and we don't believe it. It's why we pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Meaning this, there's still a part of us that would say, that's too good to be true. You're telling me God loves his people in Jesus so much that as God thinks about his future, he is thrilled knowing that we are his portion, we are his people, we are his inheritance. 
That's exactly what the Bible says. And when that really comes alive in your heart and my heart, when we really do believe that it's not just being, it's not just our knowing God, but being known of God. Can you imagine if you had one human relationship that knew you inside out, your best and your worst, your dignity and your depravity. And if you had one person like that who knew everything about you and welcomed you, loved you, and you would just want to run to them when you saw their face. Take that a gazillion times. That is your God. And yet we don't believe that. It's why Paul prays, God, send your spirit. Help your people know it really, really is true. Anyone got engaged in the last month in this room and is willing to acknowledge it? Any, raise your hand if you've been engaged for marriage in the, in the last month. Anybody in this room? All right. In the last 30 years. <laughs> Stay with me a moment. All right, good. I remember when Darlene, I proposed marriage, and I was so clumsy, so klutzy, I was the most clueless man on the face of the earth. You debate me, I'll win the debate. When, when I asked Darlene to marry me, she, she didn't immediately jump on that, because, and, and for good reasons. Uh, she knew I wasn't a rock star. No, uh, because she said, literally, I want to pray because, really, I don't want to enter into any relationship that might, that might potentially you know, rob me from what I found in Jesus. And that was profound. But you know what? When she finally did say, Scotty, I do believe God's called us to be husband and wife, I went nuts with joy. I'm wanted. I'm desired. Please understand, the best marriage in this room is just a hint of how much Jesus the bridegroom wants you, desires you, loves you. Takes us to the third and last affirmation. Not only... Does Paul say to Christians, keep growing in the lyric of the gospel, learning everything the Bible says about who Jesus is, what he's done, and who you are in him. Study it, learn it, relearn it, meditate upon it, because that gospel itself is power. He also says, I want you to know as well that it's so deeply personal that you might know and live as God's inheritance coming alive to his love, and when you forget it, come home to it. But thirdly, under this very end, there is a dance. There's a dance of the gospel. And you know what? It's not really about enthusiastic forms of music. It's not that we finally learn how to get down here in this open space and, and you know, do-si-do for Jesus. Has nothing, that's not at all what we mean by this dance of the gospel. But consider Paul's language first, and then I'll make the final connection. Then we'll move on with our day. Okay, so we've seen Paul praying intimacy with God our Father, knowing God as sovereign Abba, learning more of the hope of our calling, the lyric of the gospel. Secondly, the riches of God's inheritance, the music of the gospel that's coming alive in my heart or alive again. But thirdly, the dance of the gospel is Paul's prayer that we might know the power of God's spirit. Let me read this from the text. Verse 19. I pray that you might know as well his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength. He goes on to say, here's the power I'm praying that God God might bring to you. The power that raised Jesus from the dead. What is the connection and what does the dance mean? The dance primarily means this. As you learn more about the lyric of this gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, you begin to realize Jesus has signed on for something tremendous in this very world. 
Jesus has signed on to redeem a family from every race, tribe, tongue, and people group. And Jesus has committed to make all things new. That process won't be completed till he comes back. But you begin to realize, oh my goodness, Jesus doesn't just care about what happens to us when we die, but while we still suck oxygen. And so that you see the perspective of the kingdom and you understand that the gift of the Holy Spirit comes to you and to me to free us to live in Jesus' kingdom story. So really, the dance of the gospel is, is missional living and loving. And let me tell you what that means. It means that whoever you are, as you come alive to the gospel, come alive to grace, come alive to more grace, it, as Martin Luther would say, turns our concave hearts into convex hearts. You start thinking about neighbor love. You start realizing that the most spirit-filled church, grace-smitten, saturated church, is a congregation that exists for the outsider. If the Spirit of God fell afresh upon Orangewood Presbyterian Church, more and more people in a 10-mile radius of where you guys are will feel the welcoming heart of God. Not because you got better websites, PRs, and tweets. Because it's rumored God is doing incredible stuff among the men and women of Orangewood Presbyterian Church. Marriages are being changed. Uh, People are coming alive. They're being humbled. The rich theology, they believe it again. And and it's humbling them and it's gladdening them. And and, and it's not just that they have a a different worship style. They're different people. They they, they love the least and the lost. The welcoming heart of God redounds from this place to the nations of the world. A couple of final stories just to make that connection even more clearly. Jeff mentioned we've had the honor, humbling honor, to work with an amazing array of people in Franklin, the 33 years we've lived in Nashville, Franklin. And a couple of final stories, and I promise you, we will get on with the day because I know you've got that DVR set on the first of two NFL games today to set up our Super Bowl champion. Some of your wives are saying something else. Anyway, all right. <laughs> when she was 11 years old, just 11 years old, Emily Chapman the oldest of Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth Chapman's children, we were in a recording studio in Franklin together. Stephen Curtis was working on one of his records. Some of you that know his long discography, there was a record called Speechless. He was recording that record. I was writing the book for us called Speechless. While we were in the studio, Emily, on a break, came up to Mary Beth and Stephen, and I was present, and here's what she said. She looked at her mom and said, Mommy, I want you to have more babies. To which Mary Beth, if you know her, if you read her book, whatever, you know, she didn't miss a beat. You got to be crazy. But here's what an 11-year-old little girl said. But there are more chairs, there are more empty chairs at our table than we have children. Why wouldn't we want to care for children? See, Emily had already understood that there are 140 million orphans in the world. And she was not so much zealous that Stephen and Mary Beth literally had more children, but mommy, we love this gospel. We we're learning about Jesus and what he does. And here we are, and daddy's creating another record. And, and why don't we have more kids? God's given us a bigger house. And I share that story for this reason. An 11 year old little girl set in motion a very profoundly gifted family with a lot of means by God's grace for the work that Stephen's done as an artist. 
An 11-year-old little girl saying, I think there may be a different story we're called to live in the rest of our lives. And a lot of you know the story. Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth started adopting Chinese children. And through the heartbreak of having one of those little girls run over by one of their sons, that story has gone even deeper and farther. But let me tell you, rather than spending a lot more time on that narrative, let let me tell you the connection. Through the course of the years, the beginning of a family beginning to say, we need to be aware of what are real needs in the world. And a family beginning to say, what can we do about this? Not only did they adopt children, but they made provision for other families, maybe some in this very room. But here's how they began thinking about the dance in the rest of our life. Here's the connection. Stephen Curtis and Mary Beth now, if you read from the website or hear them talk, here's what they understand. Because of grace, one day because of Jesus, the word orphan will be written out of the human vocabulary because Jesus is making all things new. And so we are not foolish to spend the rest of our lives because of grace in some part of a broken story knowing that Jesus is at work. Before the Chapmans ever began show hope, there was a man in Parliament in Great Britain named William Wilberforce. Some of you know his name. Amazing story. Also, a man that came to faith after living in religious culture. One of his best friends became John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. William Wilberforce began to say, this grace really is amazing. And it's not about just helping people die and go to heaven, but how they live life and engage culture. So for 40 years, Wilberforce showed up at Parliament because he was convinced it's not okay that human slavery exists. For 40 years, he worked as a Christian to see the elimination of slavery. 25 years into that struggle, some of his friends said to him, William, this isn't working too well. Why don't we sign on for something more winnable? Why are you working so hard to get rid of slavery? To which he shot back, because Jesus is coming back. Here's what he meant. Not Jesus is coming back unexpectedly, And I don't want to simply be reading a fly fishing guide for Montana. I want to be found doing something great. That is not what was in his mind at all. It's not Jesus creeping up on you say, gotcha. Folks, Jesus gotcha a long time ago. Okay? Here's what Wilberforce knew. No, Jesus is coming back. Slavery will be eliminated. My labors in the Lord are not in vain. Even if I don't live to see slavery overthrown. He did, however. Now, the final word would be this. What on earth is Jesus doing for heaven's sake? Not what on earth are you doing for heaven's sake, but what on this earth is Jesus doing as the resurrected Lord? He is making all things new. And you see, this good news of grace comes to your heart because you and I need to be new, right? Right? What's your first name? Michelle, thank you. Let me pick on Michelle and Scotty both know we need to be new. But a part of being new is, as grace goes deeper, we begin to see the rest of our life differently. Here's the story our marriage was really written for. It's not about us. It's about demonstrating how Jesus takes two sinners, two rebels, two selfish people, and tells the greater story of the bridegroom for his bride. It's Christians, 
three years old and 80 year olds beginning to say, Where's, what gifts and passion has God given me? I'm, I'm, I'm a business. I'm an entrepreneur. How does the kingdom vision, how does the grace of God help me rethink what it means to be an entrepreneur? I'm a nuclear physicist. What does that mean? Do I quit my job and move to Darfur? Only if Jesus makes it clear, we need nuclear physicists living in the community of scientists, loving God well. What story has captured your imagination in your heart? And what would coming home to the lyric music and the dance look like? Oh, let us pray that 2013 will be a year that we will see that lyric again, learn a lot more of it, that we'll enter into the music and find a joy that cannot be found in any other man or woman's embrace, any amount of money, any amount of physical health, any amount of wins, only in Jesus' love, and be set free, set free as a church, as a people. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this wonderful church and its history, its legacy. Thank you for this marvelous community that has existed for years to declare the truth of Scripture and to present Jesus. Lord, I pray that will only go deeper and deeper and deeper. I pray for a joy unspeakable, full of glory for the future of this church. I pray the aroma, not of chocolate, but of grace would permeate this place and people will come running because it's been rumored Grace is changing people. Grace is changing an old PCA church. Grace is changing a pastor, a staff, elders, deacons, everybody. And they are, and they are loving Christ more than ever and loving one another with an extraordinary heaven-sent love. And they are sending forth kids into every sphere of life and culture and light of the great day when the true king returns to finish making all things new. Lord, may it be, may it be. And even now, Lord, as we stand to sing your praise, fill our hearts with your amen, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise before our God.